Thanks for finding us back on the Trojan Talk podcast once again. I'm your host, Ryan Young, publisher of Trojansports.com. Very quick intro at the top. It's been a bit of a hectic week with, obviously, the Alex Grinch firing, the aftermath of that, and it being a travel week. Getting up to Eugene, Oregon for at least one more very significant high-stakes game for this Trojans team this season. If you haven't been on Trojansports.com, please do. We have our list of 10 candidates we think that USC should consider strongly for defensive coordinator. Some surprise names on there that you probably haven't seen on their list. Obviously, a lot of common names that everyone's talking about. And we're going to discuss some of that today with the Athletics' Antonio Morales, my good friend, the USC beat writer for The Athletic, has been on the show many times, always brings great insight and great conversation. That's our first segment. And then making his usual spot back on the show, Max Brown, our resident Trojansports.com analyst, the former USC quarterback, dropping his insight, uh, his perspective on everything that's transpired this week and uh, on the Ducks, talking about the matchup, making predictions, all that good stuff. We're going to dive right in. Let's go. Okay, back on the podcast, frequent guest, but first time since the preseason, we welcome back Antonio Morales, USC beat writer for The Athletic. Antonio, thanks for rejoining us. No problem, man. I'm always, always glad to be back. Always a fan favorite. I, the best reviews when Antonio comes on. He's in high demand these days, though, so we have to pick our spots. I appreciate it. It's been an uh, interesting season, to say the least, so there's plenty to talk about. There is, and we are going to play a game called 10 Questions. And you have not seen or heard any of these questions in advance. You've had no prep time, which is great. That's fun for the show. And, you know, you might think that the format would be structured where we start with some softballs and then progressively get harder. Not on the Trojan Talk podcast. No, no, no. We are like the Houston Astros version Roger Clemens. We come out with the heater right away and then kind of tail off around the fifth or sixth inning. So we're going to start hard. It'll get easier. You'll survive. Sounds good. Let's do it. Okay, the first question. We're going to jump right into it. First question is the most important question, the hardest question. I don't even know where you're going to start with this one. What went wrong with the Alex Grinch era? If someone asked you, how did it end up like this? What would be your explanation or diagnosis on how the Alex Grinch era went so far off the tracks? I think it was a combination of things. It was a combination of bad scheme and bad personnel. Uh, I think the personnel is a little bit better this year. There's more talent on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, last year, they lacked the personnel they needed on defense, and I think we saw that in Clay Helton's last year. Um, I don't think I don't think anyone would have made USC's defense good last year, and um, obviously they made a concerted effort to upgrade the talent. And I think they they are more talented on defense this year, but I think the shortcomings of Grinch's scheme showed up a lot. I think it was too complicated, and he was asking players to do too much. We saw Braylon Shelby get burned several times um, by Utah, and we saw just receivers running open and just a lot of confusion. Um, and against Washington, uh, that happened at the end of the first half of the first game against San Jose State. So uh, these are issues that weren't corrected uh, over the course of 10 or 11 games, and even if you want to go back further to last year then. Um, so I just think it was a, a mix of things. Um, this personnel and scheme, obviously, I think scheme was the bigger problem this year, though. Yeah, I mean, to me, the most glaring thing was just, I. it was almost like Grinch or the staff in general couldn't self-scout 
like every opponent scouted them. They couldn't see the obvious flaws because it was the same every game. Like it wasn't new stuff. No, you guys just can't do these certain things and you're getting beaten the same ways over and over again. And I remember one of the last times we talked to him, asking him or trying to ask him specifically, and I probably didn't phrase the question perfectly, just about all the third and long breakdowns where quarterbacks just always have green acres uh, of space to, to run for first downs. And his answer was like, well, if, if you know they're going to do that, that's one thing. And I want, I want to say, everyone knows they're going to do that. That's literally what they do. The best was Cal. But Fernando Mendoza, there was one, I think it was like a third and nine or something. No, it was a fourth down maybe. Anyways, he got the snap and just stood like a statue and waited for the seas to part in front of him because they had obviously scouted that and knew it was going to happen, and he ran for 14 yards. But, yeah, it was just stuff like that. Just It was the same thing over and over again. I'm surprised that Lincoln Riley, as an offensive guy, couldn't watch the tape defensively and say, Alex, we got to stop doing this. Like, I, I would pick this apart. Uh, there are just several things that I think – constantly getting out leverage and like the perimeter toss players i think stanford hit a couple yeah even though stanford, stanford was getting killed they hit a couple in the first half late in the first half of that game they got some yardage i think once that was on tape like every team started running i know arizona arizona state i mean did a great job with it colorado had one that had a good game and then every other team ever since been just been doing it we saw washington do it a bunch it's getting to the perimeter and usc uh, would be outnumbered or when it's at the edge and stuff like that. There's just like failure to keep quarterback contained and the rush lanes, rush lane integrity just wasn't a thing. And we saw, uh, Seven Cordero take advantage of it in week one, uh, Mendoza and Barnes at Utah. All these guys just kept doing it continually, continually and, um, just never got better. And I think, um, th- this was stuff that was known before the season. Like other teams knew this stuff before the season. I spent that week with San Jose State, and um, their whole thing was like, "We're going to force USC to communicate, and we're going to do a bunch of misdirection." And, uh, we know if we show them one action, they're going to react so hard to it. And once we go, we're going to go the other way, and um, there should be an open lane or open open play there. And uh, so I think the book's been out on them and there's been no adjustments and no, no changes to make things better. And I think that that was kind of the troubling thing. I think that's what frustrated so many fans too. And just why they're so frustrated at Lincoln Riley's um, continued facing it for, for so long. Yeah. I think it explains why they somehow got even worse this year, despite having better personnel. Like you said, a lot of the teams they played last year were facing Grinch for the first time, or maybe hadn't had the, the depth of scouting on, on what he was going to do. And, with last year on tape, it was just exploited even more this year. And then certainly, like you mentioned, there are just personnel deficiencies in the secondary, and just get, get a lot of the explosive plays downfield were just uh, just beats. They just got beat. Yeah. So, um, but yep, it, it all ended Sunday. Uh, I wasn't all that surprised by the timing. As I wrote in my column, I, I just thought it was merciful to Grinch to do it as soon as possible because he would have just been getting beat up for the next two weeks and would have just been yeah. – national critics opposing fans usc fans it would have just been from all angles and it would have served no purpose so uh, it was it was the right time i mean obviously earlier might have been the right time but not waiting until the end of the season was the right move with that said usc has two interim co-defensive coordinators sean Nua, brian odom but antonio if you were appointed interim defensive coordinator this week you had one week to get ready for oregon what changes would you make? Could be personnel, uh, could be scheme. 
broad spectrum here. Yeah, I think I would um, try to be bigger along the defensive line. So probably play bars more than Stanley. I know Stanley's been not, has not been a fan favorite uh, the past couple of years, um, but play bars more. Probably play Sullivan a little bit more. And I think Lucas just get some guys with size up front so you can hold up better against the run and uh, just let them play and like they've alluded to try to simplify things a little bit more i think they've been trying to do too much um, up front defensively uh this season and last season i think alex grant probably did that out of necessity at washington state because he didn't have access to the kind of players you have at oklahoma or usc um, but at usc and oklahoma you don't have to do that and um i think he was kind of coaching this like a Washington State defense and when you have Barry Alexander and some of these other guys you don't really need to do that um, he didn't change so I think that's one of the few things I would change going forward yeah I, I would just go a little bit more conservative overall Oregon doesn't give up sacks USC no longer gets sacks I think it's just two in the last four games so I would not uh, sell out in the pass rush and expose myself everywhere else I would just try to minimize breakdowns and and contain as best I could if I were planning for this week. Uh, Bars, that's been the number one name mentioned on our Trojan Talk board. What fans want to see, they want to see more. Bars, next to Bear. Uh, so you hit the nail on the head with that one. Obviously, the most intriguing thing this week is is seeing either in pregame or in the first quarter if there are any kind of stunning, surprising personnel changes. And that would really speak to maybe some internal not conflict, but disagreement. If suddenly these coaches have a chance to make their own decisions and they're, and they're much different than what Grinch was doing, that would be very telling. So we'll look for that on Saturday. Question three, Antonio. Give me a percentage chance that USC can go into Eugene and get this win. It's uh, not zero. It's not zero. <laughs> I'll go 15%. 15%. Uh, I, mean, I wouldn't go much higher than that. I just think USC is what it is. At this point, they're, they're a very flawed team. Uh, they're a team that's kind of been they're – lo- they're lucky to be 7-3 and three, uh, right now. I know Lincoln Riley wants to say they're two snaps away from being undefeated, but they're also very close to being 5-5. Five and five. Um, So um, they're just a very flawed up-and-down team and not consistent enough to beat teams like Oregon. Uh, I-, I think they'll probably be a little better defensively this week, but I don't know how much that will really matter when it comes to – playing a team with a high-powered offense like Oregon. Highest scoring offense in the country. Great rushing offense. Really just a bad matchup for the Trojans. But that said, I'm going to go 24%. Just because crazy things happen when you make a major change in the middle of the of the season. Uh, it can galvanize. It can, it can jolt. And I'm just going to give a little credence to that maybe we're surprised in some way. Or maybe Dan Lanning does some crazy stuff with his you know, going forward on fourth down from his own 10-yard line or something. And uh, and just the game gets wonky. But obviously in saying that, I'm saying that I think it's an overwhelming chance they do not uh, do very well Saturday. Okay, <clears throat> number four, or cruising. Of all the names that have been floated out as potential defensive coordinator candidates, which name or names do you like the most? Uh, Jim Leonard. I like Jim Leonard the most. Um, but there's also the question of this is a guy who spent his whole career in the Midwest. Um, I think you recruit a different type of player. Uh, when you recruit at Wisconsin, you're recruiting those three-star guys or maybe developmental projects who understand that. 
and at USC who are recruiting four and five star kids who think they're going to play right away and who've been told they're going to be good and making an impact. And it's a different type of kid you have to recruit. Um, I think we saw Justin Wilcox struggle with that. Um, at USC, I think it's easier to coach those kind of kids at Cal than it is at USC or in Oregon or whatever. Um, so how does that translate? Um, so I, I like Jim Leonard the most, I think. A, a name I don't really see often, but like I don't think it would be a bad option. It would be like Derek Mason, who's working on TV right now. Oh, wow. but it's done, yeah. He's done good stuff. Um, uh, Tony Gibson at NC State's done a good job, and he's kind of familiar with that air raid tree, having worked with Dana Holgerson. Um, so I think um, there's a lot of good coordinators, especially in the Big Ten, the Big Ten uh, West, uh, at Minnesota or Nebraska or wherever, wherever else has some good options too. So uh, I, I think the floor is high for, for this search. I made my list on Sunday and uh, definitely some intriguing candidates. I looked at, obviously, looked at Bruce Feldman's list uh, that you, you guys put out. And uh, a couple of names there that I ended up including that I hadn't thought of before, and I made sure to give Bruce credit on the list there. Tony Gibson was not one I liked, though, just because I looked at his West Virginia numbers, and they weren't really good. So he had ex- he has experience with Holgerson and his Texas Tech tree, but it wasn't all that great. Now he's doing great at NC State, but he's under a de- defensive-minded coach in Dave Doran. So um, that was one name that Bruce had that I didn't include. Yeah, Jim Leonard is the one the fans want overwhelmingly and may well be a home run hire. My questions are, as you mentioned, He's been a Midwest guy his whole life. Does he even want to come out here? Took an analyst job at Illinois this year. Surely he, he could have had a, a number of opportunities, and uh, he, he chose to nestle in the Midwest. Uh, so I don't know if that's telling about what he prefers uh, personally, family-wise, geographically. So, And for a lot of the guys that ended up making my list, Bruce's list, other list, the biggest question is, do they want to come out west to USC? Um mm-hmm. There are a lot of guys that make obvious sense for USC. It's does USC make obvious sense for them is the big question in a lot of ways. So I, I agree with Leonard. I I think Dave Aranda is going to be looking for a job at the end of the season. And, I mean, we know that they basically almost hired him a few years ago before he got the, the, the Baylor head coaching job in the, in the 23rd hour. Uh, so obviously you would think that he would want to come out here if – he wanted to jump right back into a coordinator job and I think he's gonna be available and obviously his track record is what it is they, they haven't been great at Baylor he had the one season but uh, you look at the t- totality of what he's done a lot of stops I think he's still viewed as an elite defensive coordinator if he returns to that role and I think he'll be out there so I would have him there and then the one name from Bruce's list that I never would have thought of and uh, I really liked the more I looked at it was Tony White from Nebraska Young, younger guy, played at UCLA, coached at San Diego State for a long time, and then has just had really good success the last few years, first at Syracuse and now at Nebraska, really turning around defenses at, at both stops and putting up truly impressive results and numbers. Uh, I don't know if he has any desire to, to move after one year at Nebraska, but he was the name that really caught my eye. My last wild card I'll throw out there, just like you had Derek Mason, Jeff Collins. Jeff Collins was the defensive coordinator at Florida when I covered the Gators the first year I covered them, and they had a, a top 10 defense there. And not only did he have a good track record as a coordinator, which ultimately got him head coaching jobs at Temple and then Georgia Tech, which did not go well, but that's beside the point. Uh, he was a great recruiter, which is what USC needs. They need a new identity defensively. 
but they also need someone that can jolt the recruiting on that side of the ball. So he, he's a name to keep out there. He got fired at Tech. He's not doing anything this year. He's kind of out there. He's been a Southeast guy his whole career, East Coast guy his whole career. So, again, I don't know if it's a, a natural fit, but just a name to consider. Okay, on the flip side, number five, which names that have been floated around do you think make the least sense? Uh, Jimmy Lake, <laughs> just because Jen Cohen's the, <laughs> the AD and she fired him at Washington. <laughs> so uh, whenever I see Jimmy Lake, I have a long pause and just think it's <laughs> yeah. uh, not too realistic. I know some people have thrown out Morgan Scully. Um it seems like he's – I know he doesn't have the official title anymore, head coach in waiting, but when Cal Whittingham decides to retire, it seems like he's going to be the first in line to get the Utah job. Uh, so I want to make sense to me for him to come here. Um, but those are the two that kind of stand out as, uh, you know, ones that aren't very realistic to me. Yeah, I have seen Jimmy Lake mentioned very much, but, yes, that definitely is a non-starter. I, I put Scally on my list only because he's so accomplished, and I think he at least – kick the tires but you're right uh Whittingham's getting up there what's he have three four five years left maybe before he wants to move on and uh Scally is a Salt Lake City native Utah guy through and through it's been his whole life and career uh so I definitely don't think that he's he's moving uh, anywhere else uh especially coming to USC the the one name that has been on our board a lot and I mentioned this to you at practice yesterday and it surprised me I made the list and like the first uh, complaint I got about the list we put out was where is Tim the DeRoyder? Did, did you intentionally omit him? I'm like, well, geez, I didn't really even think about it. And he's had just middling defenses at Texas Tech. Yeah. Uh, his year at Oregon, they were like in the 60s or 70s. I know he's had some success other stops previously, but he's 60 years old. I don't think USC needs a guy uh, on, on his last legs looking for a retirement stop. And I just found that as an uninspiring choice and was surprised that there were there was some really impassioned support for that and and uh among our subscribers so that was a surprise for me i i think if you're usc like if you're a usc fan you want to hire somebody who like you don't have to squint to see the good parts of the resume that's a good way to put it like like alex cranch is like riding a lot on like a 2017 season from washington state um and like oklahoma was okay but it was nothing elite um, so I think um, it's somebody with like a proven track record who's done well recently. It's not like a, a Todd Orlando who's just fired at Texas or uh, something like that. Uh, I think you want somebody who's kind of on the upswing, not um, not kind of middling or on a downward trajectory. You know, Todd Orlando promised us he was taking USC to the dark place. We didn't listen to the warnings. He, t- he took him there and left him there. Yeah, that sense. <laughs> so if you, if you want to blame somebody, maybe he's the one you blame. All right, number six, looking at the defense for next year, whatever the new coordinator is going to inherit, who are the guys that we are confident are foundational guys for a good defense? So not just anyone who's going to return, not just anyone who is probably locked into a starting role, but that you're building a good defense next year. Who are you just sure and confident about from this roster that is going to be an asset to that? Uh, Barry Alexander, uh, Jacoby Covington, and maybe Damani. And other than that, maybe Eric Gentry. Um, wow. Other, other, other than that, uh, don't, I don't know who else would be 
on my list. What inspires your confidence in Jacoby Covington, who we've not really seen much of all year? Yeah, I think when he's healthy, and I think it's this, this, the the measurables and like the potential. Um, I think that'll that suits him well. And USC just doesn't have a lot of guys with that size and speed, and that physicality at corner. Uh, Damani's fast, but he's not really big. Um, so I think uh, just the potential of the talent that Jacoby has, I think, stand out to me. I like it. Uh, Bear was the one sure name I had. I thought about Braylon Shelby. I, I, obviously, I don't think he was put in the best situation this year, yeah. but he's had some flash moments. He was. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, he's very highly talented prospect, and he's only going to get better and better. Jamil Muhammad could return, I think. Yeah, I wasn't sure if he could return or not. I looked at his uh, bio, and I, and I still couldn't make sense of it um, with all his transfers. I, th- I think he has one more year. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to give up on Dak Curtis yet. I, I, everyone has kind of jumped off the ship, but, I mean, they, they were they were so sure that he was, like, a foundational guy. Like, there, there was no doubt this is the best linebacker prospect in the country. This is the future of the position here. I just can't imagine that uh, the evaluations across the board were that far off on him. I just think that he wasn't ready and uh, maybe never grasped what he was being asked to do this year and just we didn't see the best version of him. So I'm not going to rule him out. I'm not banking on any of the cornerbacks, including Damani. Um, he just still has a long ways to go. And uh, there's there's no telling if he'll get there or not. Certainly you, you like that in the profile, but he has to do it. So I, I think you're right. It's a very small list. Uh, I forgot to mention Zion Branch. Um, just because the injury, I forgot about him. But thought about him, but who knows if he's going to be able to start next season? Mm-hmm. I mean, just given how historically they've been very cautious with injuries in terms of timeline for return, and um, he took a long time getting back to full speed after mm-hmm. the last injury, so that's why I didn't uh, include him. But yes, long term, I think he's he's probably a guy there. Uh, Jalen Smith's played well at times this year. He's mm-hmm. come back next year, but. Not a lot of just uh, guys you circle and say, okay, we got it. We got our guy here. It'll be really interesting yep. to see how different the evaluations are from the new coordinator. Like if he comes in and and just has no interest in Eric Gentry but loves Rajon Davis if he's still here or something like that. Or he, he loves, you know, who knows, Tra- yeah. Traquan Fagans. And uh, we find out he's just been buried this whole season. So that'll be one of the main storylines uh, after the hire is made. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a it's kind of a problem USC's ran into for a couple of years. It's constant change and turnover at defensive coordinator. I think this will be their what fourth or fifth in the past six years, mm. uh, past six seasons. And so everyone likes somebody different, and uh, there's a constant uh, change of what somebody likes on defense. And you just have this mismatch, this mishmash of players who. Are, are liked by different uh, staffs and just kind of a mess. Yeah, I, I had a post on the board during the game Saturday where I said it's truly hard to to reconcile the fact that the defense was so lackluster with Clancy Pendergast and yet mm-hmm. somehow got worse with Tyler Orlando and then worse again his second season and then worse further in Grinch's first season. And then worse yet, in his second season. I mean, this has been a, a years-long slide. Um, 
it's it's just really hard to comprehend that it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And you'd have to, you have to think this is rock bottom. Yeah, and I, I was rewatching because was I'm trying to write a story on you know this Alex Grinch obviously had was a problem, but like this program has had problems on defense since Pete Carroll left. This has gone on gone on for about 15 years now. But I was rewatching like a 2019 game just to see kind of what the defense was like down under Clancy's last year and I was like just look at the talent they had there's just Talent Noah who's an all pro in the NFL <laughs> um, you had uh, Drake Jackson as a freshman which was his best year um, Jay Tufele Marlon Tupelo too that's just so much more talent like high end talent than they have now um, and I think that's just been one of the more noticeable drop offs is just they don't have the guys except for like Barry Alexander and maybe a couple others on that side of the ball that's a great point yeah very true Number seven, what should be USC's biggest transfer portal priority? One position. You get one position where, where they're, they're guaranteed to, to hit a, a, a five-star transfer. What position do they need it most at? Linebacker. Just the, the spot they've been so underwhelming at for so many years now. I know uh, our, our first year on the beat together, they had Cam Smith. And Cam Smith was a good player, but not – an all-american or anything by any means um is a solid player but nothing special i think they need somebody like that can truly make a difference there and they just haven't had that in such a long time um i think that's been one of the more noticeable drop-offs on defense since you know the glory days uh so i think if if they could hit a, a, a five-star transfer somewhere i think it would, it would be there and we've seen this kind of how inconsistent that group has been for uh for years now so um I would go there. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, I, I don't know how many of those guys get in the portal at that position. Mm-hmm. If, 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 you're, if you're that good and established at that spot, you're, you're probably not looking to leave because you're probably in a yeah. good defense. That's, that's highlighting what you do. It's so much easier to find a receiver who just isn't getting enough targets but has the talent than it is to find that spot. And I think that's proven out of these last few years. But if they could, then yes, that, that's, that's a good answer. Number eight, we're getting to the ends. Who, and we're gonna we're getting off the defense for a minute. Who is the starting quarterback next year? Uh, I don't think that person's on the roster right now. I think it'll be a transfer. Um, I just can't see Lincoln going into a season where Ohio or Ohio State is this year to where it's kind of they don't know what they have at quarterback or what Alabama was in until they they figured it out with Milrow. Um, I just can't see Lincoln doing that or just being caught flat-footed like that. I think he'd want somebody who's proven and experienced, especially as they're going into the Big Ten and they have a non-conference schedule with LSU and Notre Dame. Um, I just think he'll opt for more of a sure thing than what Miller or Malachi will provide. Yep, that's my answer as well. I Just from, from the little we saw, and obviously it was, it was not a ton, but even even coming in, I just thought that Malachi maybe needed more development time than people were expecting. I think Miller gets every chance to compete for that job, but definitely Lincoln brings in a, a high-profile transfer, and he'll be able to because, uh, obviously, yeah. uh, it's still a major draw for any quarterback looking to raise their profile or make a run at the Heisman or boost their draft stock. So it'll be interesting to see who that will be. We'll start putting together my list of Sam Hartman's uh, here in the next couple of weeks and, <laughs> and see who those guys are. But that's my guess as well. All right, you got two more. Number nine. 
do any of the defensive assistants remain on staff next year? Uh, I don't believe so. Uh, I think who is who's done such an impressive job to where you're like, okay, they have to stay. I can't really think of anybody off the top of my head right now. Every unit's kind of struggling, and um, say Sean and Nua, you know, that unit, say they you are impressed with him to line or whatever, like, is he going to recruit well enough to raise the ceiling of that group to where it needs to go? Probably not. Um, so uh, I have a hard time seeing any of the defensive staff um, coming back next year. He was the one guy I thought about just because he does have a strong resume, former Royals award nominee. He was a big get when they got him. Mm-hmm. Um, and if someone comes in and doesn't have an obvious defensive line guy in their back pocket, maybe – uh, they feel safer uh, keeping him aboard. But he was the only one that I thought had a chance. So oh, we'll see what happens there. All right, last one. Like I told you, we, uh, we're running out of fastballs here. We're going to lob one up for you. Which Pac-12 road trip will you miss the most, and which Big Ten one are you most excited for? Oh, this is tough. Hmm. I haven't gone to Eugene yet, so I'll have to figure that one out. Maybe uh, I didn't mind Salt Lake City. kind of like Salt Lake City, um, taking that trip. Uh, especially like the, the mountains and the view you get from the stadium when you go there. Um, so I'll probably go to Salt Lake City. And then uh, I'm looking forward to Ohio State uh, mm. when they play there. It's like I've had the chance to go to Michigan before. Um, I haven't had the chance to go to Ohio State. I don't hear great things about Penn State and the drive to get to Happy Valley, so I'm not really looking forward to that trip. <laughs> um, so I'll probably put Ohio State number one for the, the Big Ten trips. A lot of good answers there on the Big Ten side. Uh, for me, I'll miss the Colorado trip. I always enjoyed that. I always built a day in to sneak out to Breckenridge, get in the mountains. Um, I like Boulder, so... That's the one I'll miss the most. But Salt Lake City ranks very high up there as well. Uh, for me, it's Michigan in the Big Ten. I have not been there. Well, I've, I've been through Ann Arbor, but I've not, not been to a game there. And that's always been very high on my on my list of ones I wanted to get to. But certainly Ohio State. I, I'm looking forward to Penn State. Um, it is a, a bear to get out to because you can't fly in anywhere close and you have to drive to three hours no matter where you fly into. But – if it's a whiteout game, you know, just kind of the the atmosphere they they have on game day, uh, I'm really intrigued by. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a much different atmospheres than we've been treated to in the Pac-12, and so, so I think a number of that Wisconsin will be another one. A lot of them will, yeah. will just be really eye, Nebraska will just be really eye opening. Time for you to start to start scouting Spirit yeah. Airlines flights and getting ready. <laughs> you know it. Uh, proud sponsor of the show, Spirit Airlines. <laughs> Anyways, Antonio, great job. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, back onto the show. You know him well, the former USC quarterback, our resident TrojanSports.com analyst, Max Brown. Max, how's it going? It's going good. It's uh, This past week's taking me back to when we first started working together, when I feel like uh, coaching news and potential firings and the musical chairs and everything was top of mind. It's been a little while since we've had to uh, dive into something like this. It sure has. It sure has. And that's, we're going to dive straight into it because it's obviously the, the story of the week. What was your reaction to the timing 
of the decision to fire Alex Grinch. Obviously, after the game, Lincoln Riley said he kind of avoided all the, all the big picture questions and said there would be an appropriate time and place for those discussions. And apparently that time was uh, immediately. What was your reaction to the timing? Yeah, I thought it was the timing was appropriate for this season. I'll, I'll get into my comments and how it relates to last season because I know uh, USC fans have a lot of thoughts on that. But, I mean, my I was on the field after after that loss versus Washington, and it was the first time all season um, that I looked to my right and my left and the people that I was with, I was like, I wonder if Grinch gets fired tomorrow. And I, it just it felt like, I mean, hence why the firing happened, that this was a draw the line in the sand, a fork in the road type of moment. I say that, uh, that the timing feels appropriate. Wary of, you know, should this decision have happened in the off season after last season, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the same problems there should have happened, you know, two weeks ago or whatnot. I'm not as big on that because I just think it's a terrible precedent to fire coaches mid season. I just like, I mean, that, that, uh, I, I don't know if that really, I mean, well, I guess we'll see this this Saturday versus Oregon. But I just think that's a that's a that's a, that's a bad precedent to uh, to set just in your program in, in general. So I don't have a huge problem that it happened, hey, last Sunday and not seven days before or ten days earlier or anything like that. I do think it's interesting though, and we'll probably never get this out of uh, Lincoln ever or hey, twenty years down the road when he's writing his book. But I'd be curious because if Lincoln knew in his heart of hearts that this wasn't the right coordinator call and he was just giving Alex Grinch the second year just out of protocol and just out of the mindset that, hey, you can't fire a coach after one year. If, if that was his mindset and he knew it wasn't right from, uh, from the jump, then I think that, that I mean, that's, that, that's on him. And that's a huge mistake um, allowing this season to potentially be, I don't want to say wasted, but, uh, you know, you're, you're wasting the Heisman Trophy candidate's ability in what, uh, in, what, in what he could be. On the flip side, if in his bones, in his gut, he thought that strides would be made, and, Ryan, we've talked about this a couple times, I'd be curious, what's going on in practice the past six months? Like, is, is there something going on where the defense is literally getting torched in practice as bad as it has been in games? If that's the case, well, then he should have fired him again after the last season. But if he had legitimate reason to believe in his heart of hearts that if there was improvement, I don't mind giving Grinch the second season because I think, again, it's a bad precedent to set to give coordinators one opportunity and you're gone. I just think that's, that's, that's rough. And so that's how I unpack that situation. Um, but, again, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a swing and a miss, like straight up. It's a three-strike strikeout. And, um, yeah, I mean, you, 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 you missed a huge window here of potentially what could be with, uh, with Caleb Williams. I sincerely believe that he believed – uh, this offseason that they were going to take the leap and that Grinch was still the guy just because of the way he talked. We we had this, um, I don't know if unusual is the right word, but uh, interesting opportunity last January where about eight of us sat down with him for almost two hours and and just asked anything. And there was really no no time limit on it. We just kept going. And he was really candid, but, but he was so, he was just like so, dismissive of of any doubts about Grinch and just so confident and, and just telling us like he goes just you know trust me like I I know who this guy is I, I know what he can do I, if I had any doubts I'd make a move but I, I just don't like I've seen I've seen him do it 
So I, I really believe that he thought that they were going to make the leap with the increased talent and depth on that side of the ball. I would love to know at what point of this season he realized that was a mistake. Was it was it halfway in? Was it just this past week? Um, obviously, publicly, he was very, very aggressive in, in, in doubling down on, on Grinch and the defense uh, at, at every chance, which I guess you have to be once you made the decision. But it was pretty telling after the game Saturday. First of all, and I could have missed this, but after every home game, he always walks over and, and meets President Folt or Jen Cohen, used to be Mike Bone, in the end zone. And I didn't see that happen this week. I saw him beeline off the field and straight up the tunnel. Maybe I missed it, but I didn't see it. And then uh, he goes straight into questions after the game. No, no opening comments. And for the first time ever, there was no spin. There was no, well, you know, uh, there were these few moments that were really positive that we can build on. Or I could tell then that it was over. I didn't know if he would do it right away, but I could tell in that moment that he had kind of lost all will to push back against uh, the overwhelming sentiment that a change was needed. Yeah, I think it's a good observation. I think to Lincoln's credit, I mean, he has he has not thrown a defensive coordinator under the bus, which, again, shows his, um, I think, I mean, that's just the type of guy you want to work for, and hopefully that works in USC's favor moving forward with attracting a, uh, a defensive coordinator, which, which will be an interesting dynamic because Lincoln Riley has somewhat branded himself as, hey, one of the best play callers in football. But, hey, consistently his defenses have not been great. And so this will be a huge hire for him moving forward. I know we're still focused on this season, but as we move into next year, whoever that guy is, I mean, that, that'll be a – I mean, stating the obvious here, but that'll be that'll be a tremendous hire. And it's interesting. In my um, social circles and my group chats with, you know, former players and whatnot – an interesting track record at USC over the past decade with a lot of, um, I'll call them great defensive minds coming to USC and not having the level of success that they have at other places. And, you know, having a good amount of criticism from the USC fan base when, hey, the second that they're let go, they are um, some re- relatively attractive defensive commodities. I mean, names that come up is, I mean, Justin Wilcox and Peter Sermon. I mean, they, they're one of the uh, most established defensive duos in the conference. They had their struggles that time at USC. Clancy Pendergast, um, I know he's not a defensive coordinator even more, and he was in the backstage of his career, but he had a ton of success at the NFL level, and then that didn't necessarily play it at USC. One of the best defensive stories in, uh, in the Pac-12 right now is Johnny Nansen and the 15-point-per-game improvement um, defensively that he has brought it to Arizona. He was on USC staff for a long time. And so it just gets you, gets you thinking. Not sure uh, what our man Todd Orlando's doing, but uh, it just gets, you, <laughs> just gets you thinking. I believe he's at FIU, and I have not checked on the results. But he's, uh, he's bringing his intensity uh, somewhere in the, the southeast. No, it, it's a great point, and we'll touch on candidates here in a minute. But the fan base seems to the consensus popular choice for the next coordinator seems to be Jim Leonard, the former Wisconsin defensive coordinator. And to your point about it just hasn't worked at USC, no matter who's, who's been the guy, at, you know, everyone, the fans like Jim Leonard because his numbers were so impressive during his tenure at Wisconsin. But if you look at Wisconsin over a decade and a half, almost every coordinator they had put up the same numbers. And it was almost like it's, an, it's a program identity there 
where it's just not here. It's just lacking here. And I don't, I don't know how that manifests, how, how a, a program identity carries uh, through different groups of players and, and over years. Um, if, that's, if it's just coincidence or if it's just the, the string of absolute best hires. But it seems to be more than that to me. If you look at, at that case, I mean, Wilcox was at Wisconsin. Dave Aranda was at Wisconsin. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting some other names, but it's, it's always been the same story there. And it's always been the same story here for a long time now. So I, I wonder if program identity is, is, is a thing. And I, I think there's something to be said, too, about, you know, I, I hear all SC fans talking about, oh, just wait till we move to the Big Ten. It's big boy football. Like, we're going to have our hands full. Let's get something real straight. The Pac-12 is better than the Big Ten this year. I know the Big Ten top three teams, They okay, they might be better than our top three teams. I, I'll give them that. But one through 12, especially offensively, the fact that, you know, some of the offenses, the fact that a Cam Ward Washington State is like a number 10 team in this conference offensively, like it, in the Big Ten, there are not as many explosive offenses. That's just the that's just the reality. Yes, USC is going to have to level up from a physicality nature, and yes, it's going to be a huge component, especially road games in the Big Ten. But uh, the offense is out west. It's been the story for the past decade. I mean, there's been a couple off years in there, but I mean, if I'm a defensive coordinator, I would find it easier to rally up for a physical Northwestern or a physical Iowa or a physical Nebraska than I would be to get ready for a high-flying Mike Leach offense or a high-flying new school Cam Ward offense or a, hey, Jed Fish Arizona offense. Like, that, that, that's, that, that's how I would be defensively just because I feel like the quarterbacks and the passing attacks out west have been far more explosive than the Big Ten over the course of the past decade. And, it's, there's obviously trade-offs to it, but that's what I, I would fear the high flying of passing attacks more as a defensive coordinator. That's another good point. The respect given to Big Ten football from those outside the conference out here, it's it's like uh, every team, every defense is the 85 Bears, and every team is uh, Bear Bryant's Junction Boys, and it's just yeah. this level of toughness that's never been seen uh, by any of these teams. I, I think the reality is probably uh, somewhere more in the middle, but it's a good point there. So let's bring it back to the to the present, though. If if you were put in charge as the interim defensive coordinator this week, which I know plays to your specialty, uh, <laughs> what what changes would you would you try to in, in, install and in, uh, on the fly here before probably the toughest matchup of the season? Yeah, it's a good question because um, I saw Odom's comments about the fine line of, you know, you can't reinvent the wheel because there's only, you know, they, they only have so many play calls and you're not going to, like, invent new invent new uh, concepts and whatnot. But I, I would – one thing that really stands out to me is when the USC defense slants, um, bringing the defensive line, let's say they're in the front side A gap and they're slanting that, that one defensive lineman to, like, the backside A gap and whatnot. I feel like that's been a staple of Alex Grinch's high risk, high reward type of type of mentality. Like those slants can be great because they can disrupt the offensive line, but they also are a recipe for if the offensive line has your number, they can just wash you away, and it leads to huge holes. That really jumps out to me in the in the Utah game, especially, and the Washington game last week with uh, Dylan Johnson, some of his long, long runs. I would get away from that slanting mentality. I would do a lot of what they call two gapping. It's when Hey, 
Bear Alexander, when he engages the guard, you know, he has responsibility for both the A and the B gap. And whatever leverage that he can get, then the backer will take the opposite gap based off what, what Bear is taking first. And I think that defensive strategy just moving forward for SC speaks more to, hey, when we have better talent and we're able to get the better recruit, we don't need, we don't need to be as gimmicky. And not that slanting is gimmicky, but it definitely is more of a we have to be uh, – we're trying to find ways to disrupt kind of thing. So I would get at that. I would uh, – I mean, secondary-wise, I would find coverages um, – that I feel like the safeties are being put in a, in a tough spot where, hey, I would do a full dive of what coverages are the safeties, you know, the, the most comfortable comfortable in and what coverages are maybe they not involved in the run game as much. Maybe that gets them, do, do they think less in cover three? Do they think less in cover four? That group specifically, and especially with Odom um, having that background and maybe a better pulse for where that group's at, and, and the coverages and the schemes and the blitzes that they mo- feel most comfortable with, I would double down on that. That safety group for me is uh, is a huge unit because I think they've gotten uh, they've gotten exposed this season, and that's the group that I would start with. With, with hey, what do they do best, and trickle it uh, trickle it down from there. Be very interesting to see what happens. Um, also, to see what personnel changes we find this week. Um, be very telling as to whether the rest of the staff thought they were playing the wrong guys in certain spots. So, a lot of storylines in play for Saturday. Um, I, I know you haven't uh, dived deep into uh, searching for the next defensive coordinator, but obviously everyone's given a little bit of thought of some of the names that are out there. Has, has any any match seemed uh, to strike you the most interesting? The Jim Leonard one, I mean, not only because I I just, um, not because it's a hot USC name right now, but it's a hot college football name. I remember, uh, you know, when Lincoln came over a couple years ago, um, I believe that's when it was. Like, I was wary of Jim Leonard and the things that that he could be. And I I don't think it's insignificant that he has that that, uh, Midwest blood, that Midwest knowledge, that Midwest grit and thought process. That's a name that sticks out. Um, outside of that, I haven't dove into it fully um, and not entirely sure what candidates would be looming. Um, I'll say this, though. This is uh, the the one defensive coordinator that I've been the most impressed with in my Pac-12 circuits and works this year is uh, DeAnton Lynn, yeah. UCLA's defensive coordinator, who's a young guy. I, I, I think Chip's going to be hard-pressed to uh, keep him on his staff, but came from the NFL. I think he's like 34, 35 years old. Um, his uh, his dad is Anthony Lynn, um, former Chargers head coach, so well-versed in football. His the, the the coaches that he's looked up to and coached under, I mean, it's a, it's a who's who's list of, uh, of names. And I just think, hey, it might not be next year, and it'd be ironic if it was UC, USC that somehow poached. But DeAnton Lynn is going to be a hot name defensively in football, um, and UCLA's defense is great. So maybe that's a backdoor uh, backdoor name to keep your eye on. Yeah, I mean, USC fans can only hope that they nail this higher the way that UCLA did last year, because they've transformed from I think they were like the 86th best defense in the country, and now they're like 13th. Um, and no one saw that coming at the time the hire was made. I. 
I'm sure that Lincoln will at least kick the tires on that and, and they'll, they'll reach out and see if there's interest. But I would be surprised if he moved across town after one year. But who knows? Money talks. Maybe they can, they can overwhelm him. But, yeah, definitely an interesting name there. And it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see what direction this goes. I mean, I see all the tweets. I know the, it feels like the consensus amongst XC fans are, hey, we're USC. We should be able to pluck a known hot commodity um, which I think there's a lot of truth to that. But you look at what UCLA did, and they said, hey, this DeAnton Lynn guy, we know he's a rock star. He's younger. He's 15 years younger than probably every other candidate that they were looking at, 10 years younger than every other candidate they were looking at. Hey, let's get him before he becomes the hot name. And if, if Lincoln has a guy that he's crossed paths with or has a guy that is that type of that type of mold and, and brand, then uh, – you know, maybe he looks at it. It's just, it's just interesting because I think, I think in hindsight, or to say it a different way, if USC had hired Deanton Lynn last year, SC fans would have been up in arms. Why are we hiring this NFL position coach? He's never coordinated all that. And I think that criticism would have been justified in some capacity. But you fast forward eight, nine months and, you know, look at where UCLA's at. So just something to be mindful of uh, from a fan's, uh, fan's perspective. Absolutely. Well, obviously, there's not much more to break down from the game last week, but uh, I do want to talk about that awesome flea flicker play. With the, yes. Do you have uh, some extensive thoughts on the on the design of that one for us? I feel like the design's pretty intuitive, right? Like the uh, the average fan can piece together, you know, exactly how it's playing out. We all see the jet the jet sweeps, and then uh, I think a couple things stuck out to me. One. USC definitely saw something on film where, hey, we can take our time on this fly sweep because we know Washington is going to be soft to that side for whatever reason. Maybe it's a a look that they have. Maybe it's a formation alert. Maybe it's a coverage that USC knew they would get UW in, so they knew that um, Zachariah Branch could take his time. That was an intriguing part to me. And don't for, for that, for the for the for the listener, don't think of this as just oh, it's uh, we've been meaning to run this trick play. Oh, we're gonna toss it out versus UW. Here we go. No, I'd be willing to bet that this was a concept, or I'd be willing to bet that they saw something on film that they wanted to expose. And then, actually, from my perspective, that's where I just want to be a fly on the wall because I don't know exactly how that trick play came about. I guess my point is that they're not just calling this randomly because oh, this is the week to do it. No, they're seeing something on film. But it was this sparked? eight, nine months ago, and then Lincoln just put it in his back pocket? Was it something that they saw, hey, the UW corner specifically does this, and then someone's like, well, what if we attack you with a jet sweep? And then it's like a creative um, a creative dump from there. I don't know. I, I would ask uh, Lincoln that the next time, uh, next time I see him. But in addition to the play call being impressive, I thought the patience by Zachariah Branch and Caleb, that was as – uh, that was sold as well as I've, you know, as you could as you could do from a trick play uh, perspective, and how patient they were. I mean, I, it almost for a, like tenth of a second felt like a not broken play, but that Zachariah was genuinely um, reversing course to uh, to uh, try to expose the right side of the field. So credit USC for being patient there. And this is my first reaction. The second that I saw it is. I I am I would guarantee we are going to see that moving forward in football, and I would go as far as saying I think that's a trick play that just unlocks creativity in a lot of other coaches, and I would not be surprised if that just becomes a 
I'll call it foundational trick play. Like this season, I feel like a foundational trick play that's come about this season is the outside zone double reverse pass to the tight end. You've seen the Niners run it to Kittle. You've seen the Lions run it to Laporta. I've called a game versus Oregon State where they ran it. Penn State's run it a bunch. Uh, That's like a go-to trick play nowadays, especially with all the tight end usage. Now, I would not be surprised if this is a trick play we see consistently in, uh, in years ahead. All because uh, our play caller is an innovative dude. Good stuff. Uh, Austin Jones did say this week that they ran a bunch in practice and it wasn't working in practice. And yet, when it came time, when it got called in the game, they, they were confident that it was going to click. So that leads me to believe that it may have been, as you mentioned, maybe a, a matchup uh, decision and put in place this week, but don't know for sure. Well, there is a game to be played, aside from just the coaching search and all things post-Alex Grinch. Alex Grinch posts more of them. There is a game this week, and it does have stakes, as Lincoln Riley will keep reminding everybody who thinks the season ended last week. Uh, this team can still play its way into the Pac-12 title game. It can. Oregon has one loss. USC has two losses in conference. If they win this game, they have the tiebreaker. If they went out, they have the tiebreaker. So a lot at stake. I think it's more just the point that no one thinks they can win this game, which may be fair. Let's just start with with an Oregon breakdown first. So what's made them so dominant this year? They're the number one scoring offense in the country. They're a lot better defensively. They've really taken a massive leap in Dan Lanning's second season. Yeah, I think they're the one team in the Pac-12 that can um, confidently beat you in different ways. And keyword there is confidently. I think we saw last week, hey, UW's a team that can unlock different aspects of their game. It's not just Michael Penix, right? UW can run the rock. But for Oregon, um, I think that, that, that's really the case, right? You can They can beat you with Bo Nix uh, with his arm through the air. They can beat you with Bucky Irving on the ground and their run game and the physicality with their offensive line. They can beat you with the physicality of their defensive line, and I think their front seven has the ability to uh, take over. Maybe not games, but they have they have the ability to take over a half um, if you uh, if you strike it right with uh, Jordan Birch and Brandon Dorless, two of the best uh, interior defense uh, defensive players, defensive line players in the conference. And then they're athletic, and they can get after you with their pass rushers and their speed defensively as well. And then on the offensive side of things. Troy Franklin has really settled in as a true number one receiver in college football. And Oregon has not had that in a while. Um, you can even trace it back to the Chip Kelly days in terms of the last time that Oregon had a true number one receiver on the outside. That's the, that's the guy they're looking to go to in the red zone. That's the guy they're looking to go to on third down. I've been really impressed with the, the jump that Troy Franklin's uh, made. And then you saw last week, uh, Ted John- Tez Johnson, uh, Bo Nix's adopted uh, adopted brother, I guess technically, um, he went off and he's become a, a good right hand man or a, a secondary punch to Troy Franklin on the uh, on the outside. USC fans, uh, not insignificant. Gary Bryant Jr.'s had a, a, few, a couple catches. The former uh, USC Trojan, the guy I know we were all excited about uh, a couple years back. He's, he's carved out a little bit of a role in that Oregon offense um, as that maybe that third or fourth receiver. Um, so keep, uh, keep fun, fun to keep an eye, uh, eye out for him. But, yeah, I mean, the ability for Oregon to beat you in different ways. And then you mentioned it, Oregon uh, top offense in the country. And a big reason why is Bo Nix is on track to break the college football record for uh, completion percentage in a season. Um, he's right up there. He's near 80 percent um he was 29 for 38 last week so not sure where that nets out on his 
on his stat after last week, but I know going into last week's game, um, he is flirting with the uh, college football record. And so he's as, fit, as efficient as any quarterback in college football. He does a great job getting the ball where it needs to be, um, getting the ball out of his hands quickly. And it feels like he's found the right mold of, hey, here's when I need to throw it. Here's when I need to run it. Here's when I need to throw it short and let my receivers run. Here's when I need to take my shot downfield. And they've just been extremely efficient. They don't turn the ball over. And again, they, uh, if, when I look at Washington, it starts and ends with the passing attack and, and their explosiveness there. For Oregon, sure, it starts with Bo Nix, but they just have other position groups that they can beat you with. And uh, that's just the recipe for a, uh, for a championship team. Yeah, and, and Troy Franklin, who you mentioned, is uh, closing on, in on their program record for uh, season receiving yards. So give credit to Dan Lanning. I, I had my doubts last year. I, w- I wasn't sold on him. I didn't know what direction that program was going to go. I thought he had some questionable in-game management moments last year. I didn't, I didn't, didn't totally know what to make of him. And to lose his offensive coordinator, Kenny Dillingham, to Arizona State, obviously, and replace him with Will Stein from – UT San Antonio, if I recall correctly, and and they somehow get better this year offensively. Um, that's that's hard to do. That's that's hard to replace a guy who kind of built your offense and, and somehow take it to the next level that that first year with a new guy. So much respect to them. Uh, it's gonna be a very hard game up there. I assume you you played in Austin at some point, right? Or had a game? I now? did. I did. Yep. Uh, with the one road game, it was a. Uh... It was an afternoon kickoff as loud. I mean, per capita, they're, they're what, 55,000 strong? Per, uh, per capita, probably the loudest stadium that I, uh, I played in. Um, Penn State's up there, but obviously they have about double the, uh, the people in attendance. Wow. It, it's the only Pac-12 stadium I haven't been to yet, so I get to check the final box this week with that. And Predictions. Do you have a prediction? Predictions. Um, I will go predictions. I'll go. I mean, the line's fourteen. That's about the number. Um, I'll go right on the dot. Um, I'll go. Oregon beats USC. I'll go thirty-one to forty-five. Um, I am very intrigued to see. We all know the deal. When a coach gets fired, it goes one of two ways. It is just the snowball effect of the poor performance that's happened, or it's a injection of energy that allows guys to or forces guys to play at a higher clip, higher energy. I hope it's the latter for SC. I hope guys come out with their hair on fire. But I think our defense has shown – I mean, our defense has been bad. And I just don't know if there are a lot of tools in the toolkit to unlock for Odom and Nua into this game. And Oregon's that good. I mean, this is a terrible this is a terrible first game to have uh, an interim D.C. come out when it's one of the best offenses in the country. I think Oregon knows – Hey, if USC has this connotation, maybe that, I mean, I guess the players don't have this, but if around the fan base it's, hey, this season might be a waste, Oregon could not be further from that, right? They have everything to play for right on the cusp of CFP. If Oregon wins out, I I think Oregon controls their destiny. If they win out, they'll be in because I think they'll leapfrog a one-loss Big Ten team, worst-case scenario. So the stakes couldn't be be different for uh, each team, and unfortunately I think Oregon takes care of business. Yep, I'm going to go with the Ducks 44 to 35. Kind of a weird score, but that's what my instincts tell me. I trust my instincts. Before I let you go, Max, one last question for you. It's gotten some attention the last couple of days. On Tuesday after practice, Mason Cobb was asked what 
what really stood out to him from the film in terms of takeaways on why things went so bad against Washington. And he goes, nope, didn't watch any film, moved on. And that's gotten a lot of uh, blowback. Is that common after a game that disastrous to maybe just wash it and, and move forward? Or, or is, is there a reason why people, is, is there a valid reason for people to be like, wait, what? I think both can exist. Um, I think there's a valid reason that there is, wait, what? You're, not, you're telling me you're not going to watch the film? But I also think there's a valid reason of, you know, at this point in the season, you've probably seen a lot of the mistakes. And sometimes, um, you know, diving into the film can be more of a misery exercise and more of a um, depressing, uh, depressing, compo- like depressing exercise where you're like, hey, I know what I did wrong. A guy like Mason Cobb, he's played a lot of football. He's like, hey, I've seen this story before. You know, I, I'm, I'm sick of this. I want to turn the page. We turn the page on our corner, cor- uh, on our coordinator. Let's move move on to the next one. I didn't have a huge problem with it. I think if he was a first year guy or a second year guy that was just getting his feet under him, then I'd be like, all right, man, you got to watch the film. But I can relate a little bit to, to Mason Cobb's mindset. I mean, some of the tough losses that I've had in college, you know, versus Alabama, versus Stanford, uh, for me at Pitt when I was at Oklahoma State, man. I watched the film that one time, which I know this is the root of the, the question, that one time after the game. And since then, I have not gone back and watched a single, single clip of that because I'm like, man, I don't even want to, I don't even want to touch that. So I can relate to the mindset. I think, uh, Mason's, Mason Cobb's experience in that, um, makes it a not, I'm not concerned by it. I can see where he's coming from. And, um, I think both, both those factors can coexist. Well, uh, everyone's curious about the, collective mindset mentality of this defense and it can go one of two ways this could be the spark that triggers something or it could just be past the point of no return and i think we'll find that pretty quickly saturday uh max great stuff we'll uh we'll catch up again soon i appreciate it sounds good thanks ron great stuff great stuff hope you enjoyed the show i enjoyed it much thanks to antonio morales from the athletic uh follow him on twitter go read his stuff he does great great work And much thanks to Max Brown, as always. I am on the way to Eugene. Looking forward to it. It's my last, as I mentioned, it's my last uh, Pac-12 stadium to check off. So I get to complete that that list before the conference uh, implodes upon itself, which is great. Looking forward to it. And hoping it's a good game. Hoping. Hoping. We'll see. It could be. You never know. Until next time, thank you as always.